Good evening. Scripture reading will be from 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 27. Again, 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 27. In the 15th year of the Amaziah, of Amaziah, the son of jo- Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of God the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittiah, the prophet who was from gath Hefer. From, from the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. It is the biggest fish story in the Bible. I know that's an old preacher joke, but you know, it's still true. It's the biggest fish story in the Bible. It's also probably the most overdone VBS theme in existence. It is probably the most jumped on idea for a children's Bible class, especially in a moment where you find out you need to teach it because it is just so memorable. 48 verses in four chapters. If you are reading the book of Jonah, it will take you less than 10 minutes if you're a slow reader. If you are driving and listening to the book of Jonah, you will finish before you get home unless you live less than eight minutes away and don't hit any stoplights. Jonah, it is a little book with a big message. And if you were to look on Amazon for pictures uh, or for books concerning Jonah, especially children's books, every single one of them is going to have a big fish on the front. But that monster is only mentioned in two verses. And the book of Jonah is much, much more about how a man was swallowed by a very large sea creature. The book of Jonah ultimately is about a prophet who tried to fly the coop. Ironically, his name means dove. When we consider Jonah, this great book, it's about a message to Nineveh that they are going to be overthrown unless something drastic happens. They are going to be overthrown unless something big changes. And the book of Jonah is very unique among the prophets. Because when you read, in fact, if you turn your Bible just a page before Jonah, in a lot of Bibles, you'll see a very different text set up 
because it is oracles or messages uh, uh, from prophets to various nations, uh, especially usually Israel or Judah. Sometimes you'll have Edom and others like in Obadiah. If you turn forward a couple of pages, you'll see that same kind of text set up showing that it is, uh, it is a listing of oracles from the prophets. Jonah's not set up that way. It's more set up like the book of Ruth as a story format. And it really is. It's a story, a historical story. When we talk about the book of Jonah, in fact, let's just get the historical information out front real quick because there are a lot of folks because of the um, emphasis, the overemphasis on that great fish, a lot of folks have a hard time swallowing the historicity of the book of Jonah. However, there are a few very key places, very important places that show that this book is historical. Number one, the fact that Jonah himself exists. He is a prophet to the northern kingdom, to Samaria. We just read about that in 2 Kings chapter 14, 23 to 25, reigning dur or, um, prophesying during the reign of Jeroboam II. You know, that almost sounds like naming your son, you know, Hitler or something like that. When you have a guy named Jeroboam, you don't think he's going to do very good. And sure enough, just like every other northern king, he's evil. But God sure did show a whole lot of mercy, a whole lot of mercy to Israel in that he expanded the borders of, that, uh, of Israel at that time uh, because of their suffering. And in fact, I want you to look very closely as we think about this text. 2 Kings 14, if you have turned away from there, keep your finger on Jonah, but turn back to 2 Kings 14. I want you to notice just a couple of, uh, couple of words. You have 2 Kings 14 in verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel, notice this, from Lebo Hamath, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. Keep Lebo-Hamath and keep the kings that are reigning in mind. And now jump back to the book of Amos and look at Amos uh, chapter 1. Look at Amos chapter 1 in verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Notice that Amos is prophesying during the same time frame as Jonah. But now look at Amos chapter 6. And notice Amos chapter 6 verse 13. Jump back to verse 12 to get the beginning of the sentence. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? 
But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in, notice, lo devar, who say, have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath, 2 Kings 14, where they just had gained that territory, to the brook of the Arabah. The one prophecy, the one message we have from Jonah outside the book of Jonah was one that was eventually turned back around because of the evil of Israel. And the other thing to consider is who is it that Jonah is talking to? that he's supposed to send this message to, Nineveh, who really is one of the biggest enemies of Israel, Assyria. This country is known for its wickedness and brutality. And the Israelites would have felt that on occasion, and they're definitely going to feel it later. But when we look at the historicity, the realness of Jonah as a person, he is. This thing has a whole bunch of different little connectors, and if this doesn't fix it, look at that. Got it just right. He is real. But if that doesn't, that's not enough, Jesus and Matthew and in Luke will mention the historical nature of Jonah using the sign of Jonah as the sign that he is going to give to that generation. In fact, just look at one of them, Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 and verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will raise up in judgment when the men of this generation condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Look, no fish mentioned. You'll see it in Matthew 12 and verse 40 and 16. But notice the focus that Jesus is speaking to these people. There is rampant wickedness in that generation. And that the people of Jonah's day of Nineveh will be a witness against that wicked generation because although they were wicked, they repented from the preaching of Jonah. Jonah is a real person, a real prophet from God who experienced an incredible journey. When we look at the literary introduction, you know, one of the best ways to figure out what's going on in a book is to just ask, what's, what's the problem? What's the conflict? And when you get to the book of Jonah, there is a whole lot. Mainly one or two with God 
God is in conflict with Nineveh. Logan is in conflict with spelling Nineveh right. If you're a keen eye on Nineveh up there, it's N-I-N-E-V-E-H in most Bibles. God is in conflict with Nineveh. They have sinned greatly and they're about to be overthrown. But when you look at Jonah, this prophet of God, here's another interesting key note, uh, by the way, about Jonah. He's the only prophet that Jesus directly relates himself to which is a strange choice until you start thinking about the message of Jonah. But Jonah is in conflict with God. He's in conflict with the weather. He's in conflict with this great fish. He's in conflict with Nineveh. He's in conflict with, uh, with the plant, with the worm, with, with the elements that come and the, the, the other wind and the heat bearing down on him. Jonah is even in conflict with himself. You want to get to the heart of a book, just ask, what is the conflict? And in this book, there are a whole lot of conflicts. But it's not just about conflict, it is about irony. What should be expected, what should be expected and normal is turned completely upside down. For example, just one, and we'll look at several others, but Jonah tries to flee from God. The psalmist would declare in Psalm 139, where can I flee from your presence? From the omnipresent God, where are you going to run? But it's not just that one. When we look through and we look through chapter by chapter, notice a few things in a moment. Jonah is full of irony, but it's to make you focus on what's going on. When we consider this book and the literary nature of it, it's a book written in words that God uses literature. And in this particular book, he uses satire. And the general idea of satire, um, uh, it's to, to expose human folly, expose a human vice, um, and often with, with, with humor, sometimes with sarcasm, not always with those, but there are three elements that help us to determine what is or if something is satire. Number one, there needs to be an object of attack. When you look at Jonah in the book of Jonah, He tries to run from God, and that's ridiculous. And he goes to sleep on a boat during a storm where the boat is about to be destroyed, and that's ridiculous. He cares more about a plant than people, that's ridiculous. When you see the character of Jonah and you just do a character study on Jonah, it's going to be one of those that you say, I don't want to be like him. But there's also, again, fancy term, identifiable literary form. It's a story. That's literally what that means. If it is either in uh, some sort of story or some sort of parable or some sort of joke, that's one of those Uh, uh, signs that it might be satire. And then third, there's a recognizable ideal. Something that we know ought to be the case or something that we can lift up and hold up as the real standard of what should be. And so turning to the book, I want to show you some of these ideas. The book 
has been outlined in so many ways, and I, I'm not even joking, I have about eight or ten that I've written down from various preachers, and they all have something to do with this, uh, uh, these types of ideas or with um, uh, some sort of uh, everyone begins with sea, sailing the seas with Jonah, that kind of uh, uh, thing. But this is really how it breaks down in a very simple way. Chapter 1, Jonah's fleeing from God. In chapter 2, he's pleading with God. In chapter 3, he's speaking for God. And in chapter 4, he's complaining to God. When we look at chapter 1, turn to Jonah chapter 1. He's fleeing from God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee. Notice God says, Arise, and he does arise, but he flees in a different direction to Tarshish, trying to get as far away as possible from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. You have Jonah running from God. God wants Jonah to go to Nineveh, to this enemy. And Jonah gets up and he goes in a completely different way. But again, think about the irony and the, uh, the, the, the humor that's going on here. Notice... Notice verse 6. Well, verse 5, uh, the mariners were afraid because in verse, uh, verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest in the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Now look at verse 7. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Again, Picture the scene. There is a mighty tempest, a, a wind that is tossing this ship to and fro, and it's about to break the ship apart. And these guys that are trying to keep the ship from falling apart say, let's cast lots. Or probably, you know, trying to yell into the wind so that everybody can hear, let's find out what's going on. And they stop what they're doing, and they determine to cast lots to figure out what is going on. Why has this thing that is obviously different than what we were expecting? It's obviously something out of the ordinary. It's obviously this great storm. By the way, in chapter 1, you have a great storm. In chapter 2, you have a, 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 a great fish. In chapter 3, you have a great city. And in chapter 4, you have a great God. There you go. There's another one. There's another outline for the book. But you have this great storm. And they stop to cast lots. Sailors who are in the midst of a storm stopping to, to try to rectify the situation. That's a strange thing. It's kind of funny. You have a prophet of God who uses the sea for, to flee from God who he says. Notice this in verse 9. He said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. That's hilarious. You're trying to use the sea to flee from the God who made the sea? How does that work? How does that work? You have this prophet who is running from God. And then you have sailors who aren't really behaving like sail sailors. 
because even sailors back then were not known to be the uh, cleanest and nicest of people. I know it's somewhat of a stereotype today, and you know, you've got all the different pirate movies that have come out, but really sailors had sailors' mouths, and they had sailors' lives. But what you have these pagan sailors doing, notice this, after they ask him, what should we do? He's, they say, what have you done? And then they ask, what should we do? And he says, throw me into the sea. You see the, 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 the lengths Jonah is trying to get to to not have to go? He, he wants to survive and go away uh, uh, from the presence of the Lord so he doesn't have to go to Nineveh. When that doesn't seem to be working, he says, well, I'll just die so I don't have to go to Nineveh. What a selfish act. But he says, throw me, it almost sounds like it was going to help the people, but he says, throw me over. And notice he's trying to pin the blame on them as far as the ones who would end up killing him. Because what the sailors do in their response in verse 14, therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men who feared the Lord exceedingly, uh, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. These pagan sailors are not behaving like sail- sailors. They're honoring God. It's something that is completely upside down and unexpected. The prophet rebels and the pagans repent. In chapter 2, it's pleading with God. He is inside a prepared fish. There has been, for some reason, a lot of talk about every now and then you'll find a story where a man survives some time in the belly of a fish saying, see, it is physically possible to do. That has nothing to do with what the text says here because you have at the end of chapter 1 in verse 17, and the Lord appointed or the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Several times you have that phrase, the Lord prepared. Later he's going to prepare, he's going to make a plant. The Lord has established these things. It's the Lord that's doing it. If it was a normal event that he survived, that's fine. But I am absolutely comfortable in saying that if God prepared this fish and he worked in a way that is outside the normal bounds of nature, if he can make a coin appear in a fish, then he can probably make a man live in one. But he pleads with God. He runs to God instead of running away with God when he is in this most dire of circumstances. God is the only one who can save Jonah. Jonah knows the steadfast love of the Lord and he cries out to him. Notice verse 6. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope uh, of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah knows that God can save. And again, with the irony, the sarcasm that's going on in this section, 
The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah up on dry land. In chapter 3, Jonah makes his way to Tarshish. And in fact, notice verse 1 of chapter 3 and verse 1 of chapter 1 are incredibly similar. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed in God, or believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Jonah is finally going the same direction that God is going. But even here, it's kind of strange. You know, when you read every other prophet, thus says the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah. You notice how God is missing from this Eight words in English, five words in Hebrew sermon. But the text says the people believed God. It didn't take them long to figure out who this message was from. And never has there been a shorter sermon that has been more effective. And it also says something about preachers. They can probably preach a short sermon like this once or twice in their life and not get in too much trouble. But notice the effectiveness of this sermon. Again, we can question Jonah, or we question Jonah who, who he, he can't even uh, tell them how to respond. He doesn't even message or say who the message is from. But notice the abundance of the repentance. Notice verse 5, for example people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Notice it's from the greatest to the least. Notice in verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. It's from the king to the pauper. And notice verse 7, and issued a proclamation and proclaimed through Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles that neither man nor beast, herd um, nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Notice this, it was top down from the greatest to the least, from the king to the pauper, from man to animal. Imagine that. Taking away all the food and all of the water so that the animals don't have anything to eat is an act, as an act of repentance. Clothing the animals in sackcloth. Do you know how hard it is to get any kind of clothing on an animal? But covering them in sackcloth to show wholeheartedly and totally that they're turning to God. That they're turning from their evil way. 
And even they have a hope that this God that they have just heard this message from is a merciful God. In chapter 4, notice how the text begins. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. You realize in chapter 1, we see him flee, but he doesn't say why. And in chapter 2, we see this this, this prayer, this psalm-like prayer of repentance almost that, that could fit so well, close, very close to Psalm 30 as an example. But why, Jonah, did you not go when God commanded you to go? Why didn't you sing, here am I, send me? And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Notice the reason that Jonah gives. I didn't want you to forgive them. He knew God is merciful. He even pretty much quotes Exodus 36, uh, 34, 6, and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgetting iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's what Jonah wanted he wanted them to stay in their iniquity. And as he goes outside the city and kind of sets himself up this little tiny dinky booth to watch, he really hopes and prays that they will repent from their repentance. This is a petty, small man who hated, who hated the Ninevites. He did not want them To receive God's forgiveness. In this passage, two more times he wishes for death. He would rather die than see God spare his enemies. He ends up having more appreciation for a plant that grows up suddenly than for the city that took years and years to build. He has more care for the shade from this plant that he had nothing to do with and 120,000 plus people who were all created in the image of God. When we look at the book of Jonah, we see a petty prophet and it really does I can say this from a perspective of, of someone standing in the pulpit. It stands as a very strong warning to preachers and teachers. But it really does stand as a very strong warning to any one of us. Because that's the purpose of the book. It's to cause us to look inward. Notice in verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, Is it better for me to die than to live? 
or it is better for me to die than to live. But God said uh, to Jonah, do you, uh, do you do well to be angry for the plant? By the way, that's the second time in chapter 4 he asks that question about do, does it do well for him to be angry? He says at them and now at the plant. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in, it, uh, in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? God says, I care about creation and I care about the people who were there. But that's how the text ends. By asking this question, we don't get Jonah's response. It's to cause us to think very critically and very carefully about ourselves. Just a few lessons. Number one, God really loves us. God really loves us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5. God really loves us, and he has gone to so many great heights. You see here in the book of Jonah, again, there is this great storm. There is this great fish. There is this great city with such a short message, and they hear, they hear and respond. And God relents. He changes. He stops the disaster that's going to come upon Nineveh. God really loves us. Second, there really is nothing new under the sun. This is a prophet of God who had a problem with hate. You know, in one way, that's encouraging. Because sometimes it's easy for us to look at these people in the Old Testament and the New Testament and to ask, how did they have it all together so well? It's as if they're superheroes with no flaws. But what we see when we start digging into the lives of these people, and especially in Jonah in particular, we see a man of God with a major flaw. And how patient God is with Jonah instead of just striking him down or letting him drown and send someone else. There really is nothing new under the sun. Do we have the problem of hating one another in 2022? It's a problem we're probably going to struggle with until the day of judgment. But when you look at the message of the book of Jonah, it's really asking a question, how do we treat our enemies? How do we treat our enemies? Next time when you read Jesus' references to Jonah, recognize that it's more than simply a sign of three days that Jesus is referencing. What was one of the biggest problems in Jesus' day? You had the Pharisees and the scribes looking down on everyone. I'm thankful I'm not like this one. 
I'm thankful I'm not a Samaritan. I'm thankful I'm not a Gentile. You had this Jew and Gentile struggle, this relationship that was so difficult even in the early church to overcome. And yet Jesus came to people who hated him. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, God sent his son. While Nineveh was still an enemy, God sent his prophet. As Ben said before, you will never look into the eyes of another human being that does not matter to God. That's the message of the book of Jonah. And it's a message that is just as relevant today. I hope that Jonah thought very seriously about what had taken place. And I am so thankful for God who is patient with Jonah. So patient with him. You know, the book of Jonah, as I understand, is still read today on a religious holiday for another religious group for Judaism, what is today known as Judaism, called Yom Kippur. If we look at the Old Testament, it's the Day of Atonement. It's an interesting time to choose to read a book that focuses on us asking the question, how do we treat our enemies? And bowing down before God and saying, thank you for forgiving me. Can we help you tonight? We would love to pray for you. We'd love to pray with you. We would have no greater joy than to help you put on Christ in baptism. If you believe in him and, and repent of your f sins and confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and are willing to put him on, being buried with him in baptism, you can rise to walk in newness of life. Can we help you tonight? If so, come as we stand and sing this song.